Hello everyone. Welcome to the 10x Growth Strategy Podcast. I'm your host Sharada Sriram, Business Technology Strategist. Today we have with us Akila Agrawal. Akila is a Delhi-based lawyer with over 20 years of experience in mergers and acquisitions, joint ventures, corporate restructuring and general corporate advisory. She specializes in public M&A. Akila has a considerable national and international experience, having served several significant clients across a broad range of industries and sectors. While she has a long list of relevant representation, just to name a few, Oracle Corporation on the acquisition of 43% stake in iFlex Solutions Limited, the government-appointed Board of Satyam Computer Services Limited on the public bid and the sale of majority stake in the company to Tech Mahindra, the Coca-Cola company in his M&A transactions in India, and many, many more. Welcome to our podcast, Akila. For the benefit of listeners, I have known Akila since elementary school, and there was no doubt in anybody's mind that she'll be a lawyer. Akila, why don't you tell us what drove your curiosity and journey to M&A? Hi, hi, Sharda. Thank you. Thank you, firstly, for having me on this program. As regards your question as to what drove me to M&A, um, when I started uh, in private practice, frankly, at that point in time, around 2002, there were no clear practice areas within the firm. So, you know, we started off as generalists. I've done real estate transactions. I've done intellectual property law related stuff, corporate transactions, a little bit of capital market stuff in the first initial years of my career. But somehow, of course, the bread and butter of the firm was uh, corporate transaction related work. And I was lucky enough to get very good opportunities on cross-border M&As very early in my life. And the way work got allocated was that if you do something, then you get more of the same. And by accident, if you may call it that, I started becoming an M&A lawyer and also a public M&A lawyer, which is where my heart is. And uh, so I, I, I enjoy doing takeover offers, delisting offers, buyback offers and the like. You could call it an accident because if today for an associate join my firm, we actually give them a year and a half to decide where they want to settle down. So we do three rotations where they do six months in corporate, six months in our disputes and uh, six months in, uh, you know, either banking and finance, infra or capital markets. And then they get to decide where they I finally want to, uh, you know, practice. At, during my time, we didn't uh, have that kind of a structured program. But I think in hindsight, it was good because we got to do more. And I think uh, being a generalist helps in this world of specialists. It's always nice to know, have a big, broad picture. And especially as an M&A lawyer, you are frankly the go-to person uh, for a lot of things. So I do know a little bit of competition law. I'm not an expert in competition law. I do know a little bit of tax law, a little bit of IP law. But I know when to ask and, you know, bring my experts uh, on onto the table. So uh, I enjoy being an M&A lawyer because, you know, you, of course, are a specialist in the corporate side of it, but you're a generalist on various other aspects of business and business related laws. I hope I've answered your question. So <laughs> no, that's extremely interesting perspective because I do something very similar on the technology side where I work on M&A, especially for business technology and system integration. So I 
totally relate to everything that you say as far as being a generalist. And I happened to get into the space by accident too, because uh, some of the companies that I worked for previously uh, went on an acquisition spree and uh, we pretty much come after you lawyers sign the dotted line. Okay. So it is uh, a space that I really enjoy working in. And to your point, uh, we get the bird's eye view of the entire ecosystem and how things work. And uh, we are able to draw people in as the need, contextually, you know, so that is a very good perspective. Um, thank you again for sharing your uh, background. I want to segue from here into the book that we are going to be talking today. And the book we'll be exploring is The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck by Mark Manson. Um, some people in today's world call him a modern-day philosopher, and in this book, he takes us on a journey through the art of embracing life's challenges, and believe it or not, uh, learning to let go of the things that just don't matter. I also know that you follow a little bit of that philosophy, so from your perspective, tell us what are your key takeaways? So, um, I think having spent 25 years as a, you know, working woman, I don't think we can afford to not let go of some things. Uh, the only uh, big takeaway was I wish I had read this book earlier on in my life uh, as a lawyer because when you are younger, you tend to hold on to things too tightly and you try to, you give too much importance and you put too much premium to things which in hindsight and later on in your life, you realize it really did not matter at all, right? So um, a lot of the book um, resonated with me because uh, most of it, I think we do end up living that um, as older and maybe if I may say wiser professionals uh, in the industry. I think uh, some of the points that I really liked was uh, his views on, uh, you know, picking uh, your problems while you do not have control over uh, what happens to you. And of course, a lot of things will happen to you but you can decide to pick your problems and then do something about it and don't get into this victim mode and say, boo-hoo, this happened to me, why me and all of that stuff. So I, I think that resonated with me because I'm essentially a doer and um, I cannot sulk for long or I cannot move for long. I just have to keep moving on. So that really resonated. And another uh, interesting thing, maybe we can expand on, some of these things as we discussed. Another interesting thing I found was his take on uh, identity. His view was that all of us cling to our identities and uh, whether it's a positive one or a negative one, we are either insecure about it or we are shy about reinventing ourselves or changing ourselves. And this, I think, happens a lot, especially in, in the workspace because um, we get branded as something or someone and then for us to change, which we have to, because we want to grow in any profession, especially like I can speak for myself as a lawyer uh, in the initial years, it's all about execution. But after, you know, the first 10 years, it's more about relationship building, mentoring, growing a team, building deeper relationships with, you know, all stakeholders. For those kind of aspects of your career, you really need to change yourself and the way you function and work. I see that uh, in my own uh, journey. And also I see that around me amongst my juniors, people find it difficult to come out of, uh, you know, the image that they have of themselves or what they think uh, is their image and you know to get out of it to suddenly become a rainmaker or to suddenly become this vocal person who's into firm building or something like that it takes a little bit of fearlessness so I like his point about how we need to be fearless about our identity and our image 
and uh, you know go for it and not get bogged down by it so let's unpack a couple of things there right you bring up some very insightful points um the first thing of course you said older i would call it mature Okay. Uh, you know, uh, as ageism creeps in into the industry, I think we are more mature and wise, and I won't exactly call ourselves old, uh, but with age does come a lot of wisdom, and I think that is exactly what is that you're sharing with us here. Um, I see that uh, with age also comes some fantastic problem solving, which as a lawyer, uh, being analytical, uh, that must be uh, one of your biggest skills. So, and uh, having had so much experience uh, in the industry, I'm sure that you pretty much have a solution for every problem, even if uh, they might not be the quickest, but they might be the most efficient ones there. Um, I really like what you talked about uh, changing identity. Um, you know, typically people work on creating a brand for themselves, and but getting stuck with that brand, of course, I think not every industry gives you the freedom to go change yourself. Uh, what would you say, given that a lot of people in your industry tend to stick with one employer or one vertical, if I might say so, how, what does it take for you to switch the brand or what is the kind of uh, suggestions you would give to some of the people stepping into your industry? So uh, I think we need to understand, uh, uh, you know, how, as in I can speak for private practice because my industry is very large. It has various kinds of lawyers. So I can speak for private practice. I think uh, in private practice, you need to realize that you grow only when you your team grows and everybody below you and working with you grow. So I think that's an important aspect. A lot of uh, people do not uh, catch on early in their life. So uh, I see that most successful private practitioners are those who have large teams who have worked with them seamlessly for several years and who can deliver consistent quality to that to the client. And for this, you need to early on in your life realize that you're not just watching uh, out for yourself, but you're watching for this whole ecosystem that you're creating. And your life and your professional life only gets better when you start training, mentoring, and developing the people who are working with you. So uh, early on, you need to start coming out of this whole lawyer mode. Like, you know, it's not just about drafting and, you know, negotiating and analyzing and coming up with answers to the queries, but also uh, making sure you are training, making sure you're building um, building a practice and a, and, and a team, making sure you are, uh, you know, expanding the pie for the firm by getting into new areas of law or building new clients so that you're expanding the book. So uh, in my personal experience, that did require uh, some level of uh, reinvention. So of course, today, again, large law firms like mine, uh, we we support, uh, you know, our um, upcoming partners uh, and there's a lot of tools and uh, facilitation that happens. But during my time, we just learned it by trial and error. We just watched seniors above us uh, doing business development. And I remember, at least for me, the first time I had to pick up the phone and ask a client for a cup of coffee without an agenda was so difficult. And I thought, I'm like, what if he thinks, you know, what if he gets the wrong idea if I ask him for a cup of coffee? And I was very young then too. So uh, it took me some level of, uh, you know, changing my image as not just somebody who sits and, you know, does my work, but gets out of my office and goes and meets people. And tries to meet people and uh, without having an agenda. So I think that is 
one example I can think of, and that only comes with you uh, giving up on this image of yours as somebody who's just a doer and, and moving on to something bigger. I'm able to draw a lot of parallels to my industry, to yours, even though, you know, between technology and law, uh, exactly to what you're, to your point, uh, we build something called centers of excellence. We get people of certain skill sets and bring them together. So as a service delivery team, we're able to draw, you know, the right people to the right team. It's, it's just like uh, building a cricket team, I guess, you know, you need to have one person of each skill and then uh, you're able to rotate your players, you bench a few players, you bring, uh, let them rest. So uh, I think all industries have similar practices, but it's good that you're building certain templates and a mode of succession for people to come. And, uh, you know, I'm sure people who follow you in this legacy really have their, uh, they, they can grow much faster than the previous generation. True, true. I think I think that's something about identity that, you know, in our profession, every five years, we need to give up on what we have been doing for the previous five years and move on to something I would say bigger so that you create space for people who are working with you because otherwise you just, you know, suffocate the whole uh, chain, uh, you know, of leadership and growth within the firm. It is very refreshing to hear, you know, because not every profession is doing that, but it's very refreshing to hear. Uh, you try. I'm not saying that we have perfected that either, but then we consciously try because uh, otherwise, uh, you know, both the professionals and the firms lose. So it's very important that, you know, space is created. Excellent. On the same concept, there is something that the author discusses. He talks about the feedback loop from hell. How would you contribute, uh, you know, such uh, negative patterns in, in your professional life? How do you break free from them? I think uh, it, it, it happens. Uh, it happens a lot. Like, you know, you think uh, you are certain you are doing something wrong and then you beat yourself up about it and then you can't get out of it. I, I'm sure it happens to a lot of us. And uh, it does happen to me too, um, uh, you know, less now and more earlier. Uh, I remember when I was um, when I was a young mother, I used to be extremely traumatized about skipping anything that I have to do. Like, you know, I had made sure I fed breakfast to my children by myself, made sure I gave them dinner by myself. So, you know, uh, you know, I worked very late after they went to bed. I stretched myself. Of course, that took a lot of help from everyone around. But I, I put a lot of premium for to feeding a two year old child who could have been would have been clueless as to who was feeding him maybe <laughs> so in hindsight I think sometimes we really are very harsh uh, on ourselves and we don't give ourselves a break um, as to you know what is important and uh, so yes so the feedback uh, loop from hell is very real and it is important to get out of it uh, I think um, there's a lot that is written and spoken about self-love uh, I think it is a, it's a connected concept. So of course, nobody's perfect. And the earlier you understand that your imperfections are fine and people around you will work around your imperfections, uh, the, hap the better things are. So, you know, I, I, I even tell my daughter that, you know, please don't be a people pleaser because she has this habit of saying yes to everything. Uh, any teacher asks her anything, she says yes. So I tell her like, you know, you sometimes have to say no. It's okay to say no. It's okay to not be this perfect uh, student or this perfect uh, person because you really can't be. You something some there, there are too many you know, you know balls in the, up in the air. Then something will is bound to fall. 
So uh, yes, uh, it does happen, but I think it's easy to get out of it if once you realize that you don't have to be perfect. It's okay, as in it's okay to be uh, skipping exercises for a week. It's fine. You know, you can eat what you want for a week. You can cheat. Or, you know, I think people really beat themselves towards perfection. And that's something really resonated in this book because he, uh, Mark Manson mentions how today we are surrounded by people putting up these extraordinary social media posts. Like, you know, people look so great. They sing so well. They dance so well. They're also accomplished all around us. That is mind boggling. And, you know, you may start comparing uh, your lives and your accomplishments with theirs and feel not so great. Uh, I think it's a good reminder to all of us. It's like, well, of course, you celebrate the accomplishments of people around you, but uh, don't have to, you know, you don't have to be them. Like, for example, I can't dance to save my life, but I love watching my friends dance. So <laughs> I think it's fine and we, we can be imperfect. When did you develop this level of agency? You know, like I am not going to use the profanity that the book brings up so often, but that you did not care about what is going around you because uh, people do tend to be pleasers. Uh, I think only recently, uh, Sharda, I don't, obviously, you know, when I was younger, I really gave too many uh, fucks to too many things. And I think, I'm sure we all did, right? Uh, but I think as you grow older, your mind space and your bandwidth is, you don't have bandwidth to take up uh, all of these things. So, you know, as you call it, maturity uh, yeah. keeps in and uh, it, it's, it's an art you develop with time. Even people, right? As in, I don't really talk to anybody I don't want to anymore. Even clients, if suppose a client is unpleasant, he may be the best uh, person to do business with. But then I really do not uh, you know, pursue such clients. You know, I'm and I only I only develop business with people who are a pleasure to work with. So with, uh, you know, with uh, maturity, you 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 develop the sense of choice. Uh, as to what you want to do with your time, which is very, very limited. And yes, it's it's a recent thing. I, I would say the last uh, less than a decade or so. Yeah. That is uh, you know, fantastic to hear uh, because I'm going to segue into what the book talks a little bit about encouraging contentment and gratitude, right? How do you practice gratitude and contentment and has that led to a more satisfying life? I don't know if I can call uh, myself. Uh, yeah, that's something which I try. But yeah, I, I am not there yet in terms of uh, contentment and gratitude. I st I'm still uh, extremely, um, you know, I'm very competitive. I'm still very ambitious for my own good. So I still, uh, you know, keep track of certain things. Uh, I want the best for my children. I want the best for my family. I want the best for myself. And I think that's something the book also mentions, the sense of entitlement uh, that uh, that uh, some of us have is something which uh, I also have. So uh, yes, gratitude and contentment I I do try to develop and I work on it and I um, and I'm very uh, aware of it because I see so much. Like we went through COVID, right? Like post COVID, yes. I think all of us have gone through a lot of soul searching, and you realize that you know it's just what you have today may not be uh, what it is tomorrow. So let's be grateful for what we have today like uh, a normal day a boring day is awesome right isn't uh, and we need to appreciate that you know nobody is suffering any, anywhere around us and all our faculties are working and so on and so forth so yes uh, i think covid did help uh, i lost um, two dear members of my family that really helped 
but unfortunately i think the sense of entitlement is still not gone away it's still there's a lot of uh, uh, you know impatience for certain things to happen uh, which i'm i'm still working on yeah absolutely that is i think very normal you know if everything is if you are extremely grateful and content uh, you might be a saint by now so uh, <laughs> on that account i know at the one of our conversations we discussed this book being similar to uh, siddhartha by herman hesse what how yeah. would you draw a comparison between both i think there is a lot of similarities i think uh, i would call this a catchier uh, version of um, herman hesse's uh, siddhartha because uh not giving a fuck is the same as going with the flow if you really think about it and uh, uh i think there's a underlying philosophy of stoicism as in things happen to you just keep going on don't don't put too much premium on things is what both the books say in very very different ways <laughs> of course the writing style of both the books are not even comparable uh but i think uh, that's that's the underlying philosophy and 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 i uh, and i'm a true believer of that and i also uh, an important element of siddhartha's um, the siddhartha voice about how trying to search for meaning in life by itself is pointless there is no meaning in life as in you just have to keep going with the flow so don't don't beat yourself about trying to you know find this great meaning in life and i think mark manson also tries to say that you don't have to climb mountains and uh, you know achieve these uh, super human things because life at the end of the day is kind of pointless i believe that because in my personal experience i think a lot of things that happen to a lot of us is random and uh, i i well of course we should all uh, be good and do good uh, trying to search uh, for higher meaning um, is something which i am not in pursuit of so i just frankly live uh, i'm very happy just you know going with what's happening around me and i don't i'm not too spiritual if i if you may say so uh, i'm i'm not into afterlife or i don't believe in an afterlife i'm quite uh, i'm sort of an atheist so <laughs> uh, i think this that part of the book really resonated with me yeah i think that what you're saying is a very pragmatic and individualistic approach uh, to finding contentment uh, in in the face of life's challenges so i think the listeners got a bonus uh, they got reviews of two books in one yeah. uh, i want to take this uh, time to you know express my gratitude to our listeners and to our guest here akila thank you for taking time uh, to spend it with us thank and, you and uh, absolutely uh, your curiosity and engagement uh, you know absolutely helps us drive this podcast too i am very excited to continue this journey of exploration and discovery with each and every one of you and you have a lovely day thank you akila thanks sharada lovely talking to you